a lot of people look at an aircraft, the physical side of the aircraft, and, and get a, a tick in the box. The paperwork of an aircraft is 50% of it. If you haven't got good paperwork and you don't order that seriously during your appraisal, then you, you could be inheriting a real headache when you go to your next annual inspection or you try to register that aircraft or do an import certificate of airworthiness. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 85. In this one, we are delving into how to go about purchasing a helicopter, and more specifically, a second-hand machine. To help us out with the topic, we are heading to New Zealand to enlist the help of Stephen Boyce, who has close to a decade in the helicopter sales and marketing game. Before that, and also in parallel over the last few years, Stephen has racked up an impressive experience in a large variety of different helicopter skills and roles, We'll get just a, a few of his stories today, then get stuck into the, the details of helicopter sales from the buyer's perspective. So Stephen Boyce, welcome to the Rotary Wing Show. And I th- mate, I think the best way you can probably start to introduce yourself is explain how you got the, the nickname Murdoch. Hey Mick, um, hey, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you very much for the invite for a start. Uh, the nickname Murdoch was was afforded to me by engineers at work. When I really returned to living back in New Zealand full-time, I ended up working with a series of engineers at a project workshop here in, in Auckland with Oceania Aviation. And they soon realised that I, I have a, a ridiculous amount of type endorsements, uh, the jack of all trades uh, with helicopters. And so they'd ask me, you know, hey, uh, Steve, can, can you fly the A-Star? And I'd be like, yep, I've got one of those. It was like, Steve, we've got a 212, can you fly one of those? Yep, I can fly those. And so on and so forth. And so they um, they nicknamed me Murdoch off the A-Team because as you know, every different episode of uh, the A-Team, Murdoch was flying something from a Cessna to a, uh, to a, some sort of helicopter. <laughs> nice. And uh, yeah, it sort of stuck, stuck at work for a while. So, And maybe because I'm a little bit on the, uh, you know, on the fringe. <laughs> I've got to go look it up. I, I must admit, my A team um, references are a little bit uh, slack. I'll have to go and work out who's who again, but that's, that's cool. Yeah, you're showing your age. You're not that old. I used to live for the A team when I was uh, 13 years old. It was. No, yeah, yeah, no, Mr. T in the, in the black van, but uh, yeah, I was probably <laughs> just, just slightly too young for, uh, for that to be prime time. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about, uh, you're in Auckland at the moment, I think, so you want to tell us a little bit about hometown and, and what it's like there in New Zealand at the moment? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was I was I grew up in Rotorua until I was about six years old. Uh, then my father went, um, he, was a, he was the CFI at the Rotorua Aero Club when Rotorua had an aero club. And Rotorua is in the central North Island. It's about three hours of Auckland and it's a geothermal area so it's it's actually built in the, the centre of a, what's called a caldera which is a volcano essentially, quite a famous tourism town. So anyway he started uh, flying there in the uh, late 60s, early 70s 
And by the time I was born, he was the um, CFI of the Rotary Aero Club. And when I was six years old, he took the family to Papua New Guinea. So I grew up in Papua New Guinea uh, in PNG and Kundiara in the Highlands until around age 12. And then returned back to, you know, to live in Rotorua for my, my time as a sort of a teenager. And then early in my adulthood, I left to go to Australia and Canada. So, yeah, so hometown now is Auckland. Um, I've returned here because uh, my wife lives here and she's got a business. So I based myself out of Auckland pretty much for the last how many years now, 10. Yeah, I guess it's pretty much close to about 13 or 14 years I've been based out of Auckland. Haven't always lived here full time. But the last uh, 10 years with the current job I've had, I've, I've been in Auckland full-time, so to speak, yeah. I think we're going to struggle yeah. to, to cover most of the things you've done and still be able to talk about buying and selling helicopters. But I'll just, there's a couple <laughs> of things I was just going to pull out and get you to talk about. But, yeah, knowing that, though, so you've essentially – so you've been around aircraft your entire life then. So do you, do you remember early flights when you were a young kid with Dad? Yeah, yeah, look, I, and, and, it, and it sounds a little bit cliched, but my first memory is uh, looking out of peering over the side of the Cessna 206, which was on floats, just taken off from Lake Rotorua. And my dad was banked over uh, hard, you know, 45 to 60 degrees. And um, I was on the passenger side looking down at a boat on the water, which was the tourism boat they had there called the Lakeland Queen. And all these people were were sort of looking up at us. And yeah, so that that was my entire life. I I, um, I, I grew up, you know, PNG was very centric around uh, aviation. It, your whole life, especially living in the Highlands in the late seventies and early eighties, was all about aviation. It was, um, you know, the Australian Army landing their caribous on the strip of Kundiawa, uh, running out there to see them, or getting my bike, my push bike out of the way because we used to play on the airstrip, so we'd have to, you know, they'd, they'd do a low pass and get out of the way so they could land. Your whole lifeline when you lived in the Highlands as a kid was was about aeroplanes. So, yeah, um, I could draw a Fock Wolf 190 before I was nine years old. I knew uh, all about every single sort of World War II aircraft. You know, we had a few um, wrecks on the airfields around the place, and every once in a while, I'd, I'd jump in the the airplane with Dad and go out, you know, into the Highlands. It's probably on reflection fairly risky activity taking a a um, eight, nine-year-old with you into the places you did, but, you know, that was the 70s. So we grew up a little tougher. I remember being terrified doing stalls in an Islander one day. I, I just remember thinking, what the freaking hell is going on here as the thing sort of tried to flop onto its back. But, yeah, it was. A, it was I had been in all my life, and the segue into helicopters was, was a bit of a um, crazy idea, but, you know, one that's proved to be pretty interesting, make for an interesting life anyway, yeah. Did your dad ever fly helicopters? No, no. He, he almost did when he was in Rotorua um, as the working store as a low-time you know, flight, flight instructor. He helped out with an agriculture spraying operation as, a, as what you call a loader driver, which is basically the roustabout on the ground that puts the product in the aircraft in. And he was streaming, he was sort of leaning towards that. It was very much the early days of agricultural aviation in New Zealand using helicopters. And... And I, I never actually found out why he didn't, but I think that the opportunity just didn't arise and, and you know, having to make a living with a young family, he, he stayed the route of becoming a fixed-wing pilot. Mm. All right, let's uh, jump a whole heap, and I guess as we talk about other stuff, we might come back and, and touch on a couple mm. of examples, but let's go straight to flying in the Arctic in the uh, Bell uh, 214ST. 
Now, correct me, is it the biggest two-blade machine in the world? Is there anything bigger than it? It's a good question. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, the, the 214 was, um, was, a, was a really... I'm really privileged, I think, to have had that opportunity, and I'm very grateful to the guys that gave me that opportunity. It, it came out of left field, and, and it probably came out of mo- most of all out of having good work ethic. And I think most um, Aussies and Kiwis have this. I'd already been working in Canada for um, you know, the better part of a decade when the opportunity came up. I'd come back to New Zealand at the end of the GFC, and after having done, having struggled to find some contract work, I was a contract pilot at that time in Canada, which means I basically worked my summers and I flew any sort of aircraft they gave me, firefighting or you know, oil and gas support, whatever it was. But at the, when the GFC happened, it, it tanked all of it. So I'd been in New Zealand for about um, eight months, really without work. And because I had an IFR background, uh, this opportunity came up Um and this company was looking uh, for guys to take over IFR uh, roles in, in the Arctic, supporting what was called the Dewline. A long story short, I jumped on a plane the very the very day that I heard the opportunity was there. Got on a plane, got over to the eastern side of Canada, and, and signed up on a two twelve initially. Ended up in a place called Hall Beach in Nunavut, which is a province of Canada, and there we were a two crew winter and single pilot summer operation supporting radar bases which looked over the pole uh, towards Russia to see ICBM um, launches. And you can basically look at, uh, if you go onto Wikipedia, you, you'll find out all about the Dewline. It's spelled D-E-W-L-I-N-E. Anyway, after um, the better part of a year there, the guys that owned or ran the operation in eastern Canada, I was back on leave in, in Auckland, and they called me up and they said, hey, Steve, we've got a special mission for you. And I guess I'd impressed because we we had to launch out of southern parts of Canada. There were three aircraft going to three bases. And it basically, uh, I arrived almost two weeks ahead of the, the next pilot. <laughs> we all left at the same time. Um, I had a lot of experience in northern Canada and, and extremely bad weather. We were we were going into the, into the Arctic during fall. And so I really put my single pilot IFR and my bush experience to work and, you know, a fair bit of Kiwis, you know, sort of um, get the job done, but get the job done safety type attitude and managed uh, to get the aircraft up to the base well ahead of anybody else. And I guess as as, as time went on, they, they identified this as a, as, a, as a good thing, can-do attitude. And so they rang me up in Auckland and said, hey, we want you to come back to work early and we've got a special mission for you, but we can't tell you what it is. And so I rolled into Carp in Ontario, which is a, a small town in Ontario, and the, um, the chief pilot, a guy called Michel Bouzier, he says, hey, Stephen, I have the mission for you. <laughs> and it's Quebec accent. And he takes me outside and he shows me, I want you to fly this. I'm like, what is that? And that was the 214. There was my introduction to it. Uh, we went through uh, basically a three-day type endorsement, and then I took the 214, up into uh, a place called Iqaluit, which is basically the capital of eastern Canada. It's on the, uh, uh, sorry, the Arctic, the capital, and it's on the northeastern side. A fairly famous town, anyway. And the the mission objective there was to replace an, an S61, 
because the 214 actually outpaced the S61 in load and uh, economy. So you could do it with a single pilot, whereas the S61 is a two-pilot, uh, carry more load and um, and was faster, considerably faster. So it was it was the mission really was just introduce this new type into the Arctic, placate the customer who was very used to a historic aircraft, which is the S61, was used to having two crew, and and to really introduce that that aircraft type into the program and, and make it successful. And you know I guess I've been a bit of a salesman all my life, so I just yeah. I found the benefits of the aircraft, exported them to the customer, and away we went. But the 214 is, um, yeah, what to say about that? It, it's incredibly fast. It's got some unique characteristics as, as a helicopter, um, which in the past have proven to be um, uh, fatal for pilots who don't understand the systems very well. And But apart from that, it, it was just an absolute pleasure. It, it was a fantastic helicopter to fly. And my first, um, my favourite memory of that was coming into Callowit the first time ever. So arriving from the south, coming in, clear weather, nice, really nice. I, I think I was cruising pretty high, um, you know, somewhere around 10,000 feet on the cruise. And I was put into a shallow dive, you know, basically took it up towards V&E coming into a Callowit. I you know, thought I'd make a bit of a scene of, of it, you know, a bit of advertising. And the tower called up and said, we can't see you, but we can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I was, it was 17 miles away from a Callowit, you know, at 5,000 feet and, you know, up near V&E and the sonic wave off those two blades was hitting the tower and, and they knew that something had arrived in town. So, yeah, um, one of the greatest aircraft I think uh, Bell ever built. Um, you can, yeah. Well, there's one and, here and in, in Australia now. So McDermott has brought one into the country for, uh, for firefighting. Um, but but how, how would you visually describe it? So someone who doesn't know what, we, what we're talking about in, in a 214, you know, it's obviously a, a Huey sort of lineage, but yeah, can you describe it? If someone knows what a Huey is, how would you then kind of talk them on to what a, a 214 looks like? Well, probably the, the, when, you, when you first see a 214, if you haven't seen one before, um, the best way to describe it would be a Blackhawk. Put a Blackhawk on skids. And 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 take the uh, the whale tail of the Black Hawk and stick a standard 214 tail on the back. The if, if that's what I figured out anyway. That's that's my experience of it. I looked at it and I looked at the engine type. The engine type is exactly the you know similar to the early model Black Hawks that Sikorsky put out the UH60. And I think what they did was they looked at that air, that, that fuselage and and that engine and they basically copied it. They, they, somehow they must have reversed engineered it and created the Blackhawk. So it's it's like a Blackhawk on on skids or wheels. Um, it obviously hasn't got a whale tail, hasn't got a, a, t- a tail wheel under the um, under the vertical fin. It's it's basically a nose wheel. So uh, on wheels and on and on skids, it obviously looks a little bit. Um, how would you describe it? It's just a massive version of a 212, really. It's really wide inside. Like, you need a stick to hit your co-pilot. He's, he's way over the other side of the cockpit there. Um, the two-bladed system on the back, on the top, you'll see, is, is relatively, uh, I believe it's identical to the 214B. So the B model is just the single engine, obviously, um, that's fairly uh, synonymous with operations with McDermott. And the 214's got the G engines in the back, the, the, the two engines there, yeah. That's 
you probably know it when you hear it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was hearing two two blades like that. All right, let's uh, let's yeah. quickly jump in. So let's go from the from the uh, the Arctic down to the equator. So Sierra Leone in in Africa. Um, what was the go with that? How'd you how'd you end up in that one? Yeah, so like I said at the uh, at the start of the GFC, I think it was two thousand and two thousand and eight. We came out of two thousand and seven in Canada. I was I was a contract pilot up there, and in two thousand and seven, I did nine hundred and ninety three hours of flying in a little over seven months. So basically, it was eat, breathe, you know, eat, eat breathe, fly. And we we had a phenomenal year. And then we got to the end of 2007 and everything just stopped with the GFC, which is kind of ironic we're talking now during the time of COVID-19 because it's exactly the same feeling now. Everything just stopped. And as contract pilots, we were off. We were, we were you, know, you know, first off. So it was a little bit of a shock, and I remember going into Christmas, going like, "Wow, this is uh, this isn't great." And, and in 2008, I picked up a contract of firefighting in Canada on the 212 with a company, and we just did nothing. And you generally you're paid the deal is you get a, a, a retainer, but you really rely on doing hours. So as 2008 rolled to an end, uh, I didn't have enough money in the bank to survive to feed the kids, so I started looking around for work, and a friend of mine said, I've heard about this job in Sierra Leone. They're looking for someone who can fly a UH-1. And I said, well, look, I'll fly anything. So on um, the caveat was you had to have a, a US license, an FAA license. So I, I whipped down to LA, the FAA license of LA helicopters, continued on the plane across through Germany down into Africa and ended up three months in Freetown in Sierra Leone on this Rather sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. At the end, it was a Bell 205 uh, SWAA1, which was Southwest Modified UH1. So that was a company in Florida that took the UH1 and sort of civilianized it under their own certificate. I didn't know all of this at the time, but as I've got into aircraft sales, I've, I've learned a lot about these. But basically, it was UH1 that was civilianized. And uh, yeah, I spent three months in Sierra Leone. Uh, where the mission was maritime interdiction of uh, fisher, uh, fishing vessels that were, were basically poaching in Sierra Leone waters and VIP uh, security. So we had a couple of guys from Executive Outcomes, um, ex-British SAS guys as well in, in, in a, um, another company. And if somebody arrived in Sierra Leone, we would fly to the airport and, um, and they'd, they'd provide... Um, Security cover and fly into the country, you know, into the interior for business. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I feel like we're just we're, we're scratching the surface on, on on all those ones. But look, I'll, I'll keep moving just so we can, I guess, focus on the yeah, sure. on, on the guts of this one. But uh, <laughs> we'll we'll dive into those ones another time. So, all right, well, let's 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 come to your, your current role then. So, essentially, as you said, you're in, in marketing sales um, for, for helicopters, and you know, my image of that is essentially is you're uh, you know you're selling helicopters on behalf of, of clients and, and helping people buy helicopters for, for their needs. So, is that kind of the the correct impression I've got? Hey, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's essentially it. Okay, so we kind of set this up as 
me being a, you know, we were talking about buying and selling helicopters in terms of, of how to go through it and, and what that conversation would be. So if I was going to come to you, Steve, and say, okay, hey, I've, I've got a need. I'm either a private buyer or, you know, I'm looking for, for a company and I want to buy a helicopter. Where, you know, it's obviously there's Aviation Trader. I've just had a look to today and there's like 97 helicopters on for sale there. But, um, you know, if we sat down over coffee and had that conversation of, hey, look, I'm thinking about a helicopter, where does it go? What, what do you take people through? Sure. Well, I'm really blessed because I, I didn't I didn't structure my life to end up in this position. I, I became an aircraft salesperson because I met this lovely woman and I was getting regular sex and I thought I might stay in Auckland more. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's how it works. I, I was looking around for work and I, I happened to come across these guys selling, selling these helicopters. So I never structured my life as a salesperson. But um, the... We've only just touched on the past, but you know, ended up becoming really experienced in IFR and VFR disciplines in both places. I'm happy flying IFR across the Tasman as much as I am flying um, heli skiing in, in Canada in, in the middle of winter in a VFR job to working in the jungle. So, my the way that I sell aircraft is I take that experience and I use that to someone else's benefit. And so, my first questions for you would be a lot around what you, why you're buying an aircraft and why you want to do it. And, and if you're a private buyer versus a commercial buyer, there's, there's often you know, the different variables that, and, and drivers that are important. And so I take my experience as a, as a pilot and just offer it to you. And some people listen to it and some people don't. And, and sometimes I don't always understand the reasons uh, behind many purchasing decisions. But for instance, um, you know, I might recommend to somebody that they buy a Bell helicopter over an Airbus if I know that, um, you know, as a private buyer, they're not cosmetically driven or aesthetically driven, sorry, would be a better word, Airbus versus Bell. There's quite an aesthetic difference between each of the aircraft. And so then I would, you know, I'd talk to you about what your drivers are in life and how much money you've got. And if you've got an unlimited amount of funds and you really are aesthetically driven, then there's probably no way that I'll ever sell you a Bell helicopter because it's a more practical proposition, but it's not as as aesthetically pleasing as, say, an Airbus often. But if you're a guy who's worked you know, hard all his life, got an art, like I had this conversation two days ago with a guy who's got an R44 and he's saying to me, hey, I'm thinking about buying an EC120. I said, great, tell me a little bit more about you. He's a farmer, he's a gold miner. He wants something that can handle some bad weather and he's, and he's thinking about getting out of the, the R44, which he's done a considerable amount of flying in. And I'm like, well, you know, what really motivates you about your flying? He says, well, I just need something that's reliable that gets me to work. I said, well, Airbus is a great product. It's going to be good for you. But you'll segue really nicely into a, a 206 or a long ranger here because you've got that two-bladed experience. You're going to get that turbine engine behind you. And you're not going to be, if you don't fly the helicopter for a month, you're not going to be grinding your teeth over the um, the uh, the cost to you in, in calendar components expiring, you know, which is what happens with generally with the Airbus product, you know. So you just, that's those are the questions I ask, you know, really sit down and try and figure out what you really want and, and then present you with some, my opinions for you to weigh up. And then go from there, start deciding with what you need as to um, actually how it has to be configured, you know. Are you just going to go to golf every weekend? 
no worries. You don't need a hook on the aircraft. You know, if a aircraft comes with a hook, you can sell that and recoup some of the cost. Um, it, it, it's many and varied, I guess. Mick would be the best way to describe it. Okay, well, if I run through, and again, I just sat down with a, a blank Word doc and, and jotted down points or things I could think about. So buying new versus buying secondhand in a helicopter market, what are, you know, I, I guess there's some obvious differences, but what would be some of the the less obvious differences? And there, I guess I'm thinking if you buy new, you might get factory training and things like that. But talk us through that kind of, if I'm tossing up between new and a, and a secondhand, what are the, the pros and cons? Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that buying new versus secondhand comes down to your your appetite for risk for a start. Okay, and that's the big that's the big pitch on the, on a new aircraft from the manufacturers is that they basically removing all the risk of owning this aircraft. And in that exactly what you said, they'll offer you factory training, which is superb. If you ever get off a of factory training two legs, get in there and do it. I've got some mates who are factory test pilots now and they're just exceptional. You know, they're, they're going to teach you to fly a helicopter really well. They're going to give you that in-depth knowledge. You also get a warranty and you also get, um, apart from being the only person that's ever owned that aircraft, you know that that aircraft has zero history. The history that, you know, that uh, you put on it is, is the only experience that aircraft's ever had. And so that's why I say it's your appetite for risk you know, if you can afford to buy a new aircraft and that's what you, you want, then those are the benefits to it. There is, the, like, unlike a car, it's quite often benefits to buying a new aircraft is you don't suffer that much depreciation depending on the, uh, on, on the popularity of the model. And so that's, that's another good thing too. If you, if you, if you buy an optional on, on a new aircraft, so buying a new aircraft isn't like obviously like rolling into the showroom and saying, hey, I want that one over there and give it to me in blue. Um, you actually have to book in a month, a year or two ahead, depending on how, how fast the factory is producing the aircraft. So you have to buy your option, your slot ahead of time. And what sort of percentage um, would you pay for that? Is that like a, a refundable deposit or that's a, you're locked in, you don't get that back? And, and how much would that be? Yeah. My understanding of that, and, and I don't do a lot of new aircraft sales, obviously, with you know higher end stuff. So, um, but my understanding is something like if you sign up to buy a B three E or an H one two five these days, you may have to put down quarter of a million US as your initial deposit to hold your slot, and that slot is yours to use or decline later on. But there'll, there'll come a time when they call, they they ask for you to make your second payment. So um, I'm not sure that period of time. I could I could definitely have a chat to some guys next time we talk and get prepared for that. But there is a process that's that it's just like that. It's a series of payments which takes you up to the point where now you're committed. The deal is unconditional, and your next payment will be the balance, and it'll you know, it'll be two million dollars perhaps. So at some, at one stage at some stage that that slot is refundable generally. But it's a really relatively small amount of money in comparison to the the final figure of the aircraft, and you can either opt to have keep going, or they can sell that slot to somebody else, or you can sell your slot. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So second hand then. Well, actually, let's talk about the or the holding value, the resale value. What can you give us examples of of different aircraft or types which have you know really good resale value, and others which would have that depreciation? Yeah. 
I think that um, depreciation and resale value um, probably two different subjects depending on the obviously the accountant currency side of it. But um, the resale value of an aircraft is is dependent on the appetite by the market for that particular model and also the um, the scarcity of it. And a really great example at the moment, uh, probably the poster child for this, is the is the H125 or the B3E. There there is a demand for the later model of that, that those types, but there just is not a surplus of them in the market. So what was happening? pretty much from 2008 onwards, uh, the GFC rolled in. Uh, sorry, sorry, pre-GFC, I have to go back to these times. Pre-GFC, there were so many people who wanted to buy aircraft that they couldn't produce enough. So you would buy an option two to three years ahead of your, your slot, your production slot, and that, that option would actually increase in value. And so almost like options trading, you'd buy the option, and then in two years' time, someone else would come and buy the option off you. And, and pay you for it. And so there were lots of aircraft being built, you know, up to around 2008, 2009. And then after that, uh, things just tapered off. Demand was very, very, very slow. And to, in 2020, as we sit right now, the, the volumes of aircraft really haven't been coming out of the Airbus factory or the Bell factory to replace the legacy aircraft out there. And so those later model airframes, uh, the scarcity of them is keeping the values very high to the point where it actually makes the job really difficult to, to get people to buy them because everyone goes, oh, you know, I can almost buy a new one for that. Yep. But you can't get one tomorrow. So that's a, that's a key driver in the marketplace is the scarcity of a particular product. And, 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 and that sort of depreciation, you don't, you see depreciation on certain models of aircraft. I'd, I'd say at the moment that a post, um, an aircraft that is going to suffer significant depreciation might be the Bell 505. Which you know came into the marketplace really with a lot of fanfare. It was great to see a new helicopter by Bell, and it was it was really brought into the marketplace, but without much of a commercial many commercial aspirations. So it's only just recently got the hook. For instance, it's you can't do agricultural spraying with it in New Zealand. You can only do load lifting, you know, with the the hook. So it's going to really define small utility market. And so as your, as your private buyer market starts to uh, wane and you start spending towards commercial applications of that particular aircraft, there's fewer and far between besides basically moving bodies around. And so that's an aircraft where you could say the, the, you know, the, the factory keeps on producing and wants to sell the current models. There's a service of them for sale at the moment and there's not really a commercial market for them at the moment, no commercial demand. Their prices are going to drop. It's just a supply and demand situation and an appetite of the market for that particular aircraft. Okay. Yep. Mm. All right. I've been looking around. We've had a chat in terms of what type of helicopter I want. I've found one that sort of, you know, fits my price range and it's caught my eye. What do I, you know, I guess I go inspect it or do I get someone else to go inspect it for me? Do I get it to an engineer I trust? What do you do in terms of that due diligence now to, to go and buy a secondhand machine? Yeah, really, the way the process works is you, first of all, end up in a contractual arrangement. So you, you you take a sale and purchase agreement between the buyer and the seller. You sign it up and you pay a deposit. And that and that is a that is a refundable deposit, but it basically says you've got skin in the game. And so the seller of the aircraft is confident that you are serious about it because in our business that is... Um, 
there's a healthy amount of skepticism <laughs> from yeah. people. Um, you just do the characters as you well know in our industry, you know, it's like, uh, so you, you put some skin in the game, it, the money goes into escrow, so it goes into an intermediary that controls the the deal, whether that's um, a selling company like myself that has a trust account or it's a, an offshore um, entity in the United States usually. And, and then, yes, you go and look at the aircraft. And the number one thing that most people go for is an engineering appraisal. And um, and there's and you'll send your favourite engineer or you'll choose an engineer with experience to go and do it. And this is a really interesting, um, I think, a, a variable in aircraft. Your best mate might be an engineer and you send him to look at an aircraft which he has almost no experience on. He'll do his best, but he won't pick up on those those foibles, those little things that make a big difference. Likewise, if you send an engineer only, often to do an appraisal of an aircraft, or we we sorry, we don't use the word inspection because inspection means that you've actually conducted an inspection. And so, for legal terms and sales, we use the word appraisal. So, if you hear that, that's what I'm talking about. It's essentially an inspection, but it's called an appraisal because there's no, you know, there's a massive disclaimer at the bottom of the appraisal about about the job that's been done. Yeah. So. Um, Back to what I was saying, if you send an engineer only to look at it, you often only get an engineer's opinion. And you as a pilot would know, you'd, you'd look at something and you go, oh, that's a bit different or, you know, oh, that's very unusual radio selection or just little things that pilots notice, you know, particularly around the cosmetics of an aircraft, maybe, you know, the way it sits on the ramp, you know, you just kind of look at it and go, oh, she's, she looks like she's been ridden hard and put away wet, you know, those, those back cross, that cross member has got a bit of a sag in it. She seems to be sitting on her ass a little bit. The blades seem to have a bit more sag, you know. Pilots kind of tend to pick up on those really distinct points of an aircraft. So I always like to accompany my engineers with them. I rely on them heavily for their mechanical um, expertise to audit both the aircraft airframe, the engine, and importantly, the logbooks. A lot of people look at an aircraft, the physical side of the aircraft, and, and get a, a tick in the box. The paperwork of an aircraft is 50% of it. If you haven't got good paperwork and you don't order that seriously during your appraisal, then you, you could be inheriting a real headache when you go to your next annual inspection or you try to register that aircraft or, or do an import certificate of airworthiness in another jurisdiction. So paperwork is a massive part of it. So having a good engineer who's experienced on the type and also, you know, like I said, I think it's a value add to have a pilot or a salesperson that looks at it with a different set of eyes is definitely helpful. Mm. So they've had a look and you've had a look and, and, you know, there's a number of defects get picked up. Is it then, you know, my experience of high dollar cost contracts is sort of buying houses. Would you then, is that the opportunity then to go back and negotiate a either repairing those defects or changing the price? How's that in the part normally go? Yeah, correct. Think about uh, aircraft sales. There's no ombudsman's. There's no set of rules in the world. And so it's exactly that. Because your deposit, the way that we structure a deal, again, is like your buyer and seller enter into a contract. That the, the buyer pays a deposit, skin in the game, move to appraisal, look at the aircraft, get as much information as you can about the aircraft to the point where you're comfortable. At the end of that process, if you're 100% happy with what you see, you sign an acceptance letter, which basically moves the deal from being unconditional to a conditional agreement, which means it will proceed to settlement. 
there's no other barriers in the way. It's just a matter of time or the finance coming together or, or other obligations from the seller being provided for or being undertaken, um, something like an export CMA or something like that. So, yes, if you go into the appraisal process and you find out that the, um, you know, the, there has been a, um, well, let me think of something that's pretty typical. Um, say you find some corrosion in the tub of a jet ranger, you can, that changes the value of the aircraft because an aircraft is a value of some of its components plus a modicum of uh, the market appetite for that aircraft. At some stage, an aircraft is always only going to be worth its disposal value, which is the sum of its parts. You can get $50,000 for the wage, you get $100,000 for the engine, you might as well just part it out. So when you when you go into that appraisal process and you value up that, that tub and it turns out that it's going to take some repair work, that changes the inherent value of the product. So you can go back to the seller and say, hey, look, I'm willing to accept this aircraft if you give me a reduction in the price or you repair the work to the tub. And at that point there, the guy goes, yeah, I really want to sell this helicopter and you, know, you guys have found something that I didn't know about. Um, okay, look, if you're happy to live with it, I'll give you... X amount of dollars off the price, or no, I know an engineer is a good mate of mine. We're going to repair it to your satisfaction, which doesn't happen very often because that your satisfaction is obviously um, variable between people. You know, it's like, well, my satisfaction of something is greater than your satisfaction. So that doesn't happen very often. Usually, what happens is you take a little bit of money out of the out of the out of the deal to satisfy. The findings during the appraisal, um, and then you move to an unconditional sign acceptance letter and move to an unconditional position. So it's it is a all in flux right through the appraisal process because you tend to find some absolutely horrible things with helicopters when you dig into the you know into the gut for them and, and below the skin a bit. Yeah, can I imagine? How do you, I don't know if there's a good point there to, to talk about it, but how do you price in things, say, with a, a Robbie with a, you know, like a 2200-hour rebuild or, a, you know, high-dollar item, life-value item coming up? How does that sort of, how do you adjust the, the sales price based on those upcoming sort of costs? Mm. Um, you know, there's some really fantastic appraisers. Australia's actually got one of the best appraisers in the world, a guy called Dave Crick. And these guys have formulas for working out values of helicopters. They'll quite often, as part of the process, contact people like me who who trade in aircraft a lot and know the inherent value of them if they've worked the mark with the market prices. And so, say something like a Robinson R22. It's it's actually uh, there's a bit of a formula for working out so what a 22 or a 44 is worth at the end of its 2200 hour life, because there's there's a fixed cost with bringing that aircraft back to airworthiness. And if it's a clean, you know, 2200, if you've done 2200 hours in 12 years, then, you know, you can pretty much know exactly how much that's going to cost. And at the end of that, that's where I start thinking about it. I start thinking, well, Mick's got a 2200 hour R44. What's it been doing? Mick says, oh, mate, I've just fly to the interior every weekend, go to the cabin with the kids. We do a lot of flying. That's how we got up to 2,200 hours. It's all been private flying. Never seen a hook. Straight and level. A couple of left-hand turns and we land. This is 
Uh, that R44 has just done 2,200 hours of agricultural work um, or mustering, and it's been it's worked pretty hard. That changes the value at 2,200 hours of the fresh overhaul. Does that make sense? Yes, for sure. Because it, because the next buyer of that aircraft, if it is for sales, inheriting some of that history, and I can sell an aircraft that's been straight and level and done 2,200 hours of scenic flying, tourism, you know, news news copter work, or private you know, backwards and forwards to the to the cottage or the batch, a lot easier than I can sell an aircraft that's got 2,200 hours of ag work. So that's where I start my job. I look at that aircraft and think, okay, after you've done the 2,200 hour overhaul, what's it going to be worth? And, yeah, you know, this has changed now. So this is probably about four years ago. We haven't sold a lot of R44s in New Zealand in the past four years. I sold the last brand new R44 into New Zealand in 2016. So back in about 2016, 2017, I would have, if you'd come to me and said, Steve, you know, I'm going to do my 2200 hour overhaul. I've been a private pilot. The aircraft actually hasn't made it to 2200 hours. It's just that it's 12 hour, 12 year calendar limit. It's only got 1200 hours on it. What do you think it's going to be worth? I would have turned around and said, you're probably looking at about 425 for the aircraft. And it'll realistically, it'll sell somewhere around about 400. And that's, that's kind of how I work my valuations. I really look at what I think the market will pay for the aircraft when it's finished. And for other aircraft that don't have calendar items like the AR-44, for example, it's a moving feast because you have to look at every single component of the aircraft and decide how much value is left in that, that component for a commercial operator to make money out of versus a private operator. And those are really your two disciplines. A commercial guy will look at it and go like, I've got a thousand hours to run until I have to do the um, hot section of that turbine. That hot section of the turbine is going to cost me 150k. How much money do I need to make in that period of time to pay for it? Uh, whereas the private pilot will look at a, a, heli- a turbine section of a helicopter, like a you know an AEC-130 or a, um, or a Bell to a six or long ranger, and he'll say thousand hours. Gee, that's a decade of flying for me. Not even, a, not even a consideration. So the values change a little bit between buyers in that respect. But yeah, that's what you do. You look at each individual component and weigh up the value of them and then apply that market appetite for it. You know, how badly do people need this? <laughs> it sounds like a lot of uh, different levers in there to, to come up with that. What about uh, test, test flights? Is that a, a common thing? Will people generally go for a test flight in it? If so, is it just a you know lap around the block? Are you going to try and you know, pull the guts out of it to see what the, the gauges <laughs> are, are saying on it? What do you? Uh, yeah, what, what, can you tell? What can you tell us about test flights? Yeah, so from our from my position as a wholesale buyer, I very rarely do test flights. You know, you usually look at, so if we buy an aircraft wholesale out of, you know, say, auction houses in Japan or places like that, we, we can't do test flights. So we just look at the history of it and think, you know, they're a good operator. If we can get some detail on the aircraft, we'll, we'll look at it and we'll, we'll, we'll know that the engine makes good power. The number one reason for doing a test flight is to do a power check on the engine. So on some of the heavier bell mediums, you can do topping checks on the ground. You, you really don't even need to get off the ground to prove the, the power assurance of an engine on a, on a turbine helicopter. I think there's value in doing it, but I'd say, Mick, that unless someone's got experience on a particular type, the, sim, the, you know, the sensation of change on a particular aircraft, it just overwhelms them, and they don't actually know what to look for. Yep. Like, you're a Blackhawk driver, right? 
Yeah, pretty rusty, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but you're still Lake Oak driver. You know, you haven't forgotten that. You know, and if a particular helicopter and you're trying to sell sell me a UH-60, okay, oh, well, I need to take this for a test flight to see how it flies, Nick, and I've only got 10 hours on it. This is your considerable amount of time. I won't know anything about it. I'll be out there flying it, really not knowing the nuances to look for. So the, 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 the primary value of any test flight is to check out the power assurance of the engine. If you have a good test pilot with you or someone who's used to doing aircraft sales, then you can pick up other idiosyncrasies, you know, within the test flight that might add some value, you know, you know, might inform you as a buyer of a problem or, or, or find some other value. Now, quite often as an experienced pilot of something like an AS350 or Squirrel, you pick it up off the ground and you just go, oh, it's, it's real nice in the hover. Man, this thing's got some, it feels light, you know, it's got some boogie. And um, and then you can audit the track and you can do a hammers check, which most people don't know how to do. And and you can do a proper test flight if you've actually been a test pilot on the AS350. You'll know exactly how to exercise that engine to its its absolute limit because you can do a power, power assurance check for a um, an appraisal of an aircraft for a pre-purchase at 1,000 feet in an AS350 and get a pass. Sure. I do my power assurance checks at 10,000 feet because I know the front end of that engine is the most, you know, the Ariel engine series is extremely effective. It doesn't get tapped out until you're max all up weight, seven or 8,000 feet, hot and high, somewhere like Papua New Guinea, trying to get into, you know, um, Paulgra uh, in Mount Hagen, or you're in the, you know, up in Canada in the top of the Rockies there with a bunch of ge- geotechs at, at 8,000 feet trying to land on a pinnacle. That's when you really need that engine to work really well for you. And so, if you and when I do my test flights, I take the aircraft to and I stress the most critical component, which is the or the engine, to the manufacturer's limitations because I want to know that the guy's buying it's getting what he's paying for, and I know that he's going to be okay at the end of the day. And so those, that, those that's the primary driver between any test flight during a pre-appraisal check as a purchase of an aircraft is how's my engine going, and taking a look at other things like the track. Some of the other nuances you won't pick up unless you, you know, you've done a lot of flying in a particular type, you know. And so it's best to take somebody who knows what they're talking about, really, with you if you're going to do it. Yeah, how, how do you summary of it. <laughs> how do you check your insurance coverage for that? Then? So say, you know, again, we've decided on an aircraft and you're going to jump in and take it for a test flight for me and, and come back and let me know. How do you make sure that you're covered? For insurance wise, sure. Well, so you, what your buyer, your seller will have to do is add you to the insurance. Yep. Um, for that particular, that, that particular aircraft, and and really, in the day, it, it's it sounds test flight sounds ominous, but it's actually a flying flying the aircraft and and just auditing it. It's, there's not a lot that goes on, you know, um, d- depending on who's doing the test flight, as to whether they're comfortable, you know, bringing the engine back to idle. And, and conducting auto rotations while themselves. A lot of a lot of pilots, you know, like a private pilot, you wouldn't expect them to do that. But uh, any good commercial pilot or check and training pilot who, who you've got doing a particular check of an aircraft for you would be comfortable with that. You know, obviously you'd be a great choice. Being an instructor, you're comfortable with it. You know, I, I do it all day. Maintenance test flight guys that go and do a lot of flying are good for that. And you just talk to the you talk to the seller and you say, hey, you're going to have to add Nick to the insurance for me. You'll provide your information to them. They'll they'll look at it. The insurer say. You know, this guy's only got 10 hours, should you really be flying your helicopter? Or, you know, Nick's got three, four, five, six, seven thousand hours, yet no worries, he's good to go. 
in your cupboard in that particular scenario. Okay. Um, I've sort of heap of points here. I'm just looking at the time, so I'll, I'll crack through them. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll only just cover buying, yeah. buying a helicopter. Might have to do 2.0. <laughs> Uh, well, currency exchange rates obviously, uh, you know, can make a, a pretty big swing in in the cost of helicopters. And I, and I think, and again, this is how I, I guess we got chatting in the first place. Is you put out some really good emails in terms of your your email marketing, and what I love is you know they're, they're story based. It's a skill I wish I wish I had for for our own thing. You know, each time you put out a marketing email, it's it's you know it's a story, and you actually kind of want to read <laughs> what's going on in the story. But um, I think you mentioned that exact thing that because of the exchange rates. Either the NZ machines were quite cheap at the moment, or it was cheap to buy overseas. I couldn't remember which way it went, but yeah, how, how much did that affect the, uh, the price of helicopters? Oh, yeah, it's, it's significant. Um, I'll, I'll I'll put out the disclaimer that if you if you're trying to deal in helicopters based on forex rates and thinking that you can you know make a bit of money here and there with it, you know trading them, it's not really. You better just to stick to the forex markets, you know. Because so, we've done it in the past, we've gone like, oh, gosh, the US dollar's weak against New Zealand now. Let's you know, try and buy some aircraft and wait for the dollar to strengthen. And quite often, it can, you know, um, uh, can be a really stressful time. But here's how it works the primary, the trading currency of aviation is the US dollar. It isn't going to change anytime soon. Um, as much as I'd love it to become Bitcoin, it's probably not. So the US dollar is the number one currency of the world. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're buying an aircraft in England, New Zealand, or, you know, in Italy, generally you'll do the deal in US dollars so that everyone's working from a common value. Now, right now, uh, I'm sitting in America and I've got, I've always wanted to buy a helicopter. The New Zealand dollar currently is at about 0.58 to 5.9 cents on the US dollar. Which means your buying power of one US dollar is significantly, significantly better. And whereas you know, pre pre COVID nineteen, that that was ten cents difference. So the New Zealand dollar was running at about sixty six, sixty five cents against. Sorry, that's not quite right. There's my math bad. About eight cents, but it, it's it was running about ten percent stronger against the US dollar. So if you're a US based buyer and your 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 funding is in you know US dollars, you have a you have a stronger buying position if you deal in the domestic currency. You know, you might, uh, and that in turn, it works for you because people in New Zealand, people in Australia, their financing is in New Zealand or Australian dollars. And so if they're trying to get out of an aircraft and they need a million dollars for it in New Zealand currency, then they're willing to accept a lower US dollar amount to meet that million dollars in New Zealand. And that's where the, that's where the, the value adds. Back in 2011, 2012, the New Zealand and the Australian currencies and the Canadian as well at the time strengthened against the US dollar. I think the New Zealand dollar got up to around about 88 cents and the Aussie dollar might have even been on par. And so at that time, it was a great time to buy a helicopter or an airplane in America and bring it home because historically our dollars don't hold that strength against the US. The values in the US, um, you know, it's a great place to buy. If their dollar is suffering against our dollar like that, there's something economically wrong there. So there's going to be some value in the US market to be found. You know, aircraft that where the owner is in distress, you go looking, you buy it, you bring it home. And in time, you know, people have made quite a bit of money on that over the last sort of five to um, 10 years where they've, they've, they've purchased 
soon after the GFC where the Australian New Zealand dollars were strong. And then five years later, the dollar, the Australian dollar has dropped, obviously. New Zealand dollar has dropped um, and the US dollar has strengthened. So they sell it back again in US dollars and they've made a 10 or 15%, maybe 20% margin on the exchange rate, which has offset the cost of operating the aircraft for a couple of years. All right, but you reckon you just... need a whiteboard for that. <laughs> no, I was going to say, but if I'm guessing all I take from that, though, is for the average buyer that it's not a, a huge consideration day-to-day type thing. Like, if you're going to go play the market, as you said, you'd go to actually do that in the Forex market or the stock market or something rather than a, in a helicopter market. So if, you, if you're in the if you're buying a helicopter, you're basically just looking at whatever the conditions are at that particular time. 100%, yeah. And... It's just the liquidity, obviously, in the in the aircraft market is it's not there. The only time that it's really liquid and there's really fast sales is if someone's losing their shirt or they're in distress and they're just dumping stuff. And there's always going to be somebody who's wanting to steal something. You know, you'll find that money if you need it. But no, you're quite correct. If you want to you know, work work exchange rates, don't do it with aircraft generally. It's um, not a great idea. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, next point I had was the inclusions. So, and again, you know, it could be a, a huge amount between a, a shed full of spare parts that goes with the machine and that. But what are some of the, the things that would normally be included in a helicopter sale? What are the things that, that aren't normally included that you'd have to specifically put in a contract? Something, you know, handling wheels, covers, possibly headsets. What are, what are some of the different things there? Yeah, 100%. You hit the nail on the head. It's the, um, and, and the headsets, the, the hand, ground handling wheels, the the covers are all the things that end up that people end up arguing about. And you think to yourself, that's ah, just the covers. Well, it's not. They're expensive. So when you go into the, when you go into the negotiation for the aircraft at the very start, you have to do your best to become as informed about that aircraft as possible. And that's where you pick up on all the little extras and things that are around the place. And even during the appraisal process, there's still room to 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 add value to the deal during the appraisal. When you walk in the door of the hangar and you look at the R44 that's sitting there and it's got a special tow cart built for it or a trolley or some something else that's particular to, you know, you look at it and go like, ah, didn't know you had a purpose-built trolley for this aircraft or a you know, special tow cart or um, something else, you know, heaters that go in it, I don't know or floor mats, you've got to go in there and during the appraisal process and keep your eyes open and look around. If you if you see on the shelf that the guy's got 10 R44 oil filters sitting on the shelf, there's a private player, you go, sorry if we could toss those into the deal. That's that's really important. And just to, you're absolutely right, go into it. Usually in my contracts, I'll put a, um, in the list of the equipment and just generally in the first appendix, which actually describes what you're buying, a lot of people go into great detail about putting the, the engine numbers down and the airframe serial number down, all that other stuff, which, I mean, if, geez, if someone swapped an engine on you, you'd be, you'd be a real mug. And they miss the, the stuff that's right down the bottom. And I always put down the bottom as a disclaimer, any, any blankings, any blade um, or engine airframe covers, any ground handling wheels. I use the word any. That way, if there's none, it doesn't really matter. But if they're there, you can turn around and say, look, we said any ground handling wheels. Because ground handling wheels for an A-star, for a Squirrel B2 or something like that, you're talking five grand. It's ridiculous, you know, for a pair of wheels. And they're going to argue over that. If they think they can sell them later on because you missed it, well, you know, more for you. Yeah. 
Yep. No, fair enough. Sorry to expand on that. Selling an aircraft, it's kind of a really big big thing. A lot of people don't actually know what they're selling. If you ask most pilots, you know, what, what model radio have you got in your helicopter? A professional like yourself will look at it and go like, oh, yeah, this is the LKY-196. Hey, reliable radio, you know, you don't no screens on this thing. You just turn the dial and she works. But if you ask most pi- pi- other, other owners, you know, um, you know, what, what model of engine is this and this? And what radius have you got? And uh, what GPS have you got? They don't know. And and so they're trying to sell the aircraft themselves. And, and they're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to keep that GPS that's in that helicopter. Well, that's where I was going to go. I was just saying, like, you know, yeah. when you go for your appraisal, do you take a picture of the, the cockpit? And, and obviously when it turns up, you're making sure you've got the same number of instruments and things. Yeah. Absolutely. You can take a photo of the, of the cockpit and that'll just put you into court later on because people will argue it. You're better to go there and uh, during that appraisal process, take that photo and go, hey, I noticed you had a uh, Garmin, you know, whatever sitting on the dash there, but it's not listed in the chattels, so to speak, the chattels or the equipment list. Oh, I, I was planning on keeping that. Oh, but all of your advertising on Aviation Trader shows that in the aircraft. I thought it was coming with it. Uh, That's the conversations you yeah. generally have, you know. <laughs> okay. And you and you go, oh. and then as a broker, you're going, oh, I missed that one, you know. And here we go. Here goes the argument. And so then you have to placate everybody to go, look, mate, it's just a GPS. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. I'm going to put it on my next machine. Well, do you really want an old GPS? You, know, you end up going through this whole process. Just creates a lot of hassle for people. So getting it. Getting the finite details of the aircraft ahead of time and really working out what you're buying is definitely beneficial to any sale. It makes it so much cleaner. Financing. Um, what are the, I don't know, is it the same as getting a, a boat or a house, I think? What, what are the special helicopter or special aviation financing sort of clauses or things you need to think about there? Uh, yeah, we, we don't do a lot of financing, to tell you the truth. We if someone says to me, oh, you know, my, my, my purchase is subject to finance, I just say, look, come back to me when you're not subject to finance because uh, I don't really have a lot of time to, to wait. Most people show up, they've been to see their bank, uh, they've been to see their second-tier lender, and they know what they want. Private people, you generally know you've got the money to buy it. But there are, obviously, you can go to any sort of, uh, you can go to your bank, obviously, and get finance for an aircraft, and you can go to a lender like GE, or somebody like that, an asset lender, and, and find finance as well. Over the last decade, with the oil and gas shut down and the other higher-end issues um, that, that lenders and the particularly the helicopter market have suffered, there's a really, really distinct lack of appetite for, for lending on helicopters. You know, As far as lending or, or taking debt over an aircraft, it's, it's particularly, there's some, some interesting... Uh, points to it. The first thing is that any of the Australian banks, or even the New Zealand banks, will not lend on an aircraft that's not in the country. So, you know, people get on Aviation Trader from New Zealand, they get on Controller from Australia and New Zealand, they look and they see a deal over in Australia and they, uh, over in America and they think, oh, I want to buy that. And so then they go to the, through the process of trying to buy the aircraft and their bank says, yeah, no, you're financed, mate, you're good to go. And then they go to the bank and they say, yep, they don't want to draw down on that aircraft. We've just signed a sale and purchase agreement for it. And they go like, okay, no worries. Where is it? And they say, oh, it's in, it's in Los Angeles. 
oh, well, we're not going to land on that aircraft until it's actually in Australia. Yeah, um, right. That makes things complicated. <laughs> it's a big complication. And so then you get, you know, you end up with companies like um, my own and others that actually step into the gap and and, uh, and fund the aircraft until it comes into the country. And there's generally a, you know, some sort of penalty for that. Yeah. But often the banks are fairly draconian in their rules, and they you know, even between the you know the Australian banks own most of the New Zealand banks, but even then they will not deal with each other and say, hey, we've got an asset coming your way, we're you know we're comfortable with paying for it in Australia, so you can ship it to New Zealand. And so as a as a, as a broker and aircraft seller or buyer, I'll often structure deals with that in mind to try and. Um, persuade the finance companies and the banks to release the funding. So there's, there's certain tricks you can do with, around getting aircraft packed and things called bill of ladings on ships and all sorts of things that provide some level of security to the to the financier around it. But to answer your question, yeah, you can go and get into debt for a helicopter. It's, it's entirely possible. Will they send a valuer send value around? And, and there's often you know, conflicts there between what people will say it's valued at and what the, the bank valuer will look at it? Yeah, that, that's where, like I said, guys like Dave Crick, Dave Air there, he's a he's a valuer where he'll go in on the bank's behalf and value the asset and look at the disposal value of it, like the worst-case scenario, this is the best-case scenario of selling that aircraft. It's really no different to boats, houses. Um, obviously, houses are a little bit more liquid, um, any of that sort of asset. Yeah, they, they'll... Um, They'll look at they'll look at what you're trying to buy, and sometimes they'll give me a call and discuss the aircraft. And a good broker, and there's quite a few guys around the world who, who are like that, or good sellers of aircraft, and they'll be able to explain to the bank exactly exactly why the aircraft is valued the way it is. And it might be something like you said around accessories. You know, they might go um, using an R44 as an example. Gosh, this is really an expensive R44, and you say, yeah, but you know, it's it's fully equipped for agricultural work. Oh, what does that mean? I said it's got $100,000 worth of avionics on it, plus it comes with spray gear, which if you had to try and put that on there, that'd be another $100,000. There's $200,000 worth of value in this aircraft. Ah, you know, it changes their position on the aircraft. Like, ah, okay, now we can see some value in this aircraft because if we have to dispose of it quickly, we're we're obviously not getting in over our heads. But that's a real specialty one in uh, finance. You probably could do a whole podcast on that. With, with some guys who, who do spend a lot of time doing that. Yeah, well, I might get some names like off you later on. If you haven't got money, I don't usually deal with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll keep firing these at you. Um, group ownership is that a, a you know is that a common thing that you'll come across in terms of I guess whether it's a more of a private ownership thing where you know you get four people want to go and chip in and, and share cost a helicopter. Uh, is that a different proposition for buying than just buying normally? Anything special to think about there? Mm. Yeah, uh, we call that syndication over over this side of the pond. Syndication, I don't really have an analogy for it, but it's kind of like hiring your wife out. People get really, it usually is only emotion, uh, sorry, um, private, private individuals who do that, and it's, a, and it's an affordable way to enter into aircraft ownership. The issue is when, Easter rolls around, everybody wants the helicopter or the aeroplane. And so it's it's often has, its, it's pros are that it's affordable, you share the cost, 
the cons are that it may not be available the weekend that you want it. So um, I've got a couple of colleagues who do that and, and I could definitely push, put them their way, you, you sort of direct them to you if you want to discuss further about their experiences with it. But generally, the sentiment that I hear is like, oh, you know, I'm sick of being in a syndicate. I just want to own, own my own aircraft and I can afford to do it now. Yep, sure. Because I want to take it whenever I want to take it. The other issue that comes to me as an individual and as a, as a, as a commercial pilot is that, and I don't want to be too negative here, but I tend to find that private pilots have um, they've, they've succeeded to the lowest common denominator in aviation. You know, and they often have got through the training syllabus, kept on going at it, kept on going at it until they've actually achieved the minimum, you know, requirement and achieved a private pilot's license, and then they're off on their own. And there's not a lot of peer oversight, which I think is a major problem in our industry based on, you know, you can see the statistics for it anyway. And 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 so from my perspective, if I had as an assistant with another three or four other pilots, I'd really want to know who those people are. I want to know how they use the aircraft because I've flown with hundreds of pilots in my time, as you have too as an instructor and in the Army. And you get such a variable of uh, capability within those individuals. You only need one person in that in that syndication to be over-talking that jet ranger and not telling you to be costing you hundreds of thousands of dollars at the end of the day. Um, you only need that one person to be exceeding V&E to be adding incremental wear and tear and fatigue to your aircraft. And funnily enough, one my friend of mine who owns a Hughes 500, he had that exact thing happen. He, he leased it out to a, um, a high net worth individual who wanted to fly the aircraft and he had a spider tracks tracking system in it. And he got back after a week and he looked at the tracking on it and he went like, wow, gee, that, he was doing 145 knots, you know, yeah. in the aircraft going from A to B. And he went, hmm, that's unusual. And then he looked at the reverse track thinking there might've been some error, right? Worked out the numbers on it, did the navigation math and went, hey, geez, you know, and, and essentially, this guy was wrenching his helicopter and, excuse the language, he was just pulling the ass out of it. He was flying around at, at uh, you know, at whatever he could get out of it and possibly over-talking the aircraft to get from A to B because he was paying for time. Yeah, as fast as So these are considerations, you know, the moral of the story, know you guys who are flying it and be, be comfortable that they fly it the same way if you were sitting in the left-hand seat with them. All right, another topic again, we could probably do a whole session on that one, but just quickly, the actual transport arrangement. So ferry it, you fly the, the new machine from wherever it is to wherever you, you want to keep it. But then things like prepping it by road or putting it on a ship and marinizing it, uh, do you get involved in that side of things in a purchase? Sure, sure do. Yeah, in typical Kiwi fashion. <laughs> we, <laughs> it's got to travel from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So actually, the last deal I did was um, just before COVID-19 was they fell 429 out of Indonesia. And so ferried it through Singapore. I, I dismantled it there with the assistance of a couple of guys from Bell. Helicopters got in there, took the parts off that we needed to do, put it onto a shipping cradle, um, lifted it onto the back of a, onto a truck, onto a flat rack, took it to the port, strapped it down on the port, checked the lashings myself, zip-tied it, covered it up, and pushed it into the ship. So transportation of, of aircraft, particularly helicopters, is generally done by ocean freight or air freight. 
Air freight is generally six figures to move an aircraft around the world, depending on the size of it. It won't be any less than generally six figures, so $100,000 if you wanted to pack your um, Fuse 500 into the back of an Antonov and you know, send, it, send it to Europe or America. And, and, and generally, more the bigger the aircraft gets. You, know, you would have seen the 212s come in with um, air freight for the fires last year from the guys in Canada and Wildcat and places like that. They just pack the thing up, drop it onto a, a flat rack and push it into the back of the, the Antonov. But the more common approach to moving aircraft around the world, particularly light aircraft, these days, light helicopters, medium helicopters, fixed wing up to, you know, sort of the size of a DA-62. I've packed a DA-62 before. Is is generally to put it into a shipping container or put it on a flat rack or what's called a MAFI pellet. So it goes into or on board a ship and gets, you know, transferred over. Marinization as a subject Generally, we take a lean approach because it's better that the aircraft, we think it's better that the aircraft breathes during the transit, and it depends how it's shipped. Bigger aircraft sometimes can't go below deck. Uh, light aircraft, we generally pay the extra and we make sure that they're below deck and, 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 and protected from the elements. It's not often you see a, an aircraft as deck cargo, but I have seen 214s crossing over the Tasman because it's only a six day transit and it's nice and sunny. Yeah, no harm, no foul. And 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 there's various various people have various um, opinions on how to pack aircraft. But like I say, we don't. You can wrap an aircraft in plastic, um, and a lot of people do that. They actually use this product, which you would see um, around a construction site. It forms sort of a shelter or a tent for the builders to to work under um, as they do a modification to a building. You can do that to an aircraft. We prefer not to do it if we're not asked to because it costs lots of money and it doesn't allow the aircraft to breathe. Gotcha. So we'd like that aircraft to just have air come and go in and out of it as necessary. Yeah, it's a fairly complicated subject. <laughs> That's right, yeah. aircraft around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, we might – how about we call it there in terms of uh, subject there covering and buying because <laughs> there's heaps to go into it, but it's going to give most people a pretty good intro to, to some of the things to think about. Steve, do you want to just quickly, I guess, just plug your details there at Oceana to you know, let people know where you are and, and, and what you do there and how they can track yeah, it down for, for more intro on some of those things? Yeah, sure. I would say to every everybody that generally, uh, if you really think about buying an aircraft and you want to do it yourself, more power to you. But, but pick up your phone and call your local brokers. We've got a guy called Dan Egan in Queensland there. You know, there's there's, a, there's um, James Guest down in Newcastle. All these guys all over Australia, um, out west. Um, you know, these are all our competitors. You know, Damien Jew out there at Heli West. They're really great guys. They're really experienced. Get a good feel for them, and just and just just ask them. At the end of the day, say, hey, I want to buy buy my own helicopter. Um, I just need a bit of advice. Can I get some help? Or just use a bra because it generally doesn't cost you anything. And if you pick the right person, you can at least get some value in it. Myself, my contact details is Stephen Boyce with a P-H-E-N. And Boyce is spelled B-O-Y-C-E. So Stephen.Boyce at professionalhelicopters.com. So professionalhelicoptersplural.com. And that's a bit of a mouthful. But you'll find me on LinkedIn and Facebook, and I'll probably spam you like I've spammed Mickey on some <laughs> story to get his attention. Yep. <laughs> but you're more than welcome to call me. And in New Zealand, my phone number is plus six four 
for a New Zealand here, uh, country code. So that's plus six four two one five four zero four six zero, and that'll get me most times of the day or night. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd probably suggest LinkedIn's probably a good one too. So if you throw you know, Stephen's name into to LinkedIn um, and make a connection there, he's got a, a pretty good profile and you can see, uh, I guess, where that Murdoch uh, comes from in terms of all the – he's got quite a list of aircraft types there listed on, on LinkedIn. So Yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, look, we, we covered – stories sometime, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, look, we covered a fair bit of territory there. So, look, I think that was good. Sometimes it's hard to know whether to do a topic – you know, in depth or to cover a whole heap. And I think it's one of the findings that the more I do these, the, the better value is just to pick a, a pretty narrow thing and then try and spend a fair bit of time on it. So uh, that's that's pretty good. It's going to cover a fair bit for somebody who wants to learn to buy a helicopter. So uh, look, I'm, I'm sure we can probably catch up again and cover a few more things. So Steve, thank you so much, mate. Oh, it's a pleasure. My pleasure is all mine. Thanks, um, Mick. And yeah, I hope it's helpful. Um, I didn't prepare all that much because we kind of had a busy sort of COVID-19 time here. But if anyone's got any specific questions about aircraft ownership, get in touch with Mick. Mick, you're welcome to to send them my way with the email and um, be happy just to help. You know, we we like we like to see people have a good experience. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Passion more than just a just a, a business venture. I've been flying helicopters now for almost 20 years and I'm no closer to buying one than I was when I started out. But that at least gives me an idea of where to go about starting the process. Hopefully that's the same for you. Stephen, he's given you his contact details there, but if you didn't grab them or if you want to connect, then there's a link on the show notes to his LinkedIn profile. If you're listening and you have brought a helicopter before, have a think. Was there something that you learned going through the process yourself that you can share with others? If so, jump on the blog post for episode 85 at rotarywingshow.com and leave your tip or your story in the comments and keep the conversation going that way. To the gang helping to support some of the the show costs through sponsorship on Patreon, you guys are legends. Thank you so much. So again, big thanks to, to Heath, AJ, Brent, Chris, Eric, Gareth, Hal, Jack, Jake, Jason, John, Kevin, Kirillin, Mark, Michael, Peter and Dell, Shannon and Tony. It's very much a homegrown effort here behind the podcast. Uh, if you're open to chipping in a dollar or two, then it makes a difference over time. And it's really appreciated. If you're keen to get Stephen back on to talk about helicopter sales, maybe from the, the seller's perspective, then drop me a note at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. That's something that we can probably hook up if there's a, enough interest out there. There are a couple more tall tales that I'm, I'm sure we can probably squeeze out of Stephen too from his travels around the world that's pretty much a wrap for this one I've got uh, two more interviews just uh, on the hard drive almost ready to go uh, including if you want to try and guess beforehand a chat with someone that has taken a helicopter up to 40,000 feet let's see if you can work out who that is <laughs>